So hello and welcome to our ongoing series of Icons of Relocation podcast. My name is Simon Johnston. I'm the CEO of Icon Relocation, a provider of world-leading home search, moving technology and property management solutions. Now, today I'm delighted to be joined by perhaps one of the longest standing, maybe most experienced people in the UK relocation industry, with, I propose, probably more anecdotes about the industry going back from the 70s onwards than perhaps anybody else. Who am I talking to? Of course, I'm with Ian Fryson. Ian, how are you? I'm extremely well and I'm glad to be on board. Uh, you're looking good, my friend. You really are. So it's great to be speaking to you. Thanks. Now, obviously, I've known you for a very long time. I suspect most people do. But for those who are not familiar with you, could you give us a little bit of career background? Yes, certainly. I'll, I'll try and be as brief as I can. I know I'm not exactly known for my brevity in uh, terms of speech, <laughs> but there we go. There um, you go for you. I think I can sum it up by saying in my, my whole career since I started work at 18, straight out of school really, has been varied, very varied, uh, and sometimes extremely up and sometimes extremely down. But I have to say, gladly, by the time I retired at 71 or so, um, mm. it seems to have smoothed out into quite, a, quite an interesting peripatetic career. Um, I started working when I was 18 for a, a large firefighting company, Angus Fire Armour, who made they were the largest manufacturers of fire hose in the world. <clears throat> it wasn't what I expected to do when I left school. I wanted to be an actor. Um, but there we are. I got hired as an export clerk um, to learn all about fire hose and everything that goes on a fire truck, really. That's fire hose, foam compound, fittings, ladders. And, and five years later, when I was 23 in 1970, I knew really quite a lot about this stuff. And so on my 23rd birthday, they gave me a Samsonite suitcase and a Samsonite briefcase and some traveller's checks and a letter of credit for £5,000. And they sent me off on my, on my birthday to eight countries in Africa um, on an eight-week trip, which was quite daunting for a 23-year-old. Um, and I did, I did that um, for five years, twice a year for 10 weeks. I visited 10 African countries, visiting our distributors and saying, hello, my name's Clayton from Angus Fire Armour. Let me tell you about Angus Duran 500 Firehose. And I, I did this remarkably. All my friends were stunned <laughs> by this. I did this remarkably uh, until 1975 or 6, when they sent me to Zambia to the Copper Belt to help our agents sell fire protection equipment down the mines. I mean, that was an experience. Wow. Now, if you think of that, Simon, five years of doing two trips a year for, for 10 weeks, it's really like many, many short-term assignments. Yes, isn't it? Especially then, in the early 70s as well. Was this before relocation really had found its feet? Well, you know, I was going to come on to that later, but I mean, relocation did not exist. It was, you know, go east, young man, go west, young man, you know. And, and I, was a, I, I, I had no cultural training. I didn't know what to do. I made lots of mistakes. And they sent me then to Africa. So that was my long-term thing. So I had this... Depth of knowledge that was growing embryonically in this young man, um, without knowing, really without knowing that many years later, we'll come on to that, it, it, it will come in very useful. Then in 1977, when I went back to the UK from Zambia, they then launched me out again to the Far East to live in Singapore and to open up a, an office in Singapore just for a one-year contract. Yeah. And seven years later, seven years later, they pulled me back because I was earning more than the managing director on commission. <laughs> well, that shows you're good at your job, so that's, that's no bad thing. 
But the interesting thing about this, and to bring it into perspective to mm. our industry, uh, in, in the mid-70s, there was really no relocation industry at all. I mean, if it was, it was very embryonic. I think by the, I got no help at all. I, I, I had no work permit when I went to any of these countries. I had no tax advice. I got myself into a real, real muddle, I have to say. For example, my first week, I was given 10 days to find a, an apartment in Singapore. I knew nothing. I knew nobody. My agents weren't any help because they didn't want me there. You know, they saw me as a threat. So I went to a local agent and he found me a flat and it was a, I thought it was a very nice flat. I didn't know Singapore at all. I signed the contract. Uh, having seen it, I went in four days later, when, a week later when my goods arrived, and I opened the door. It was full of velour furniture and dark wood. and it, I thought, I can't live here. I cannot live here. They said, what have I done? I said to the landlord, really, I'm really, really sorry about this. I'm happy to give you two months rent, but can you, he said, I'm very sorry, Mr. Kreitman, but you have signed a one-year lease without a break clause. Now, to get out of that cost my company 25,000 Singapore dollars, and it put me in a very invidious position. So that's where the help of a relocation agent, A, not getting into that messy situation, but B, giving me cultural, if I'd had cultural training before I went, and some language training, I wouldn't have made the appalling cultural faux pas that I made when I was dealing with Singaporean Chinese. Good Lord. Isn't that interesting? So, I mean, this is the this is when. So, just get my timelines. Mid seventies, is that what you're saying? Mid, uh, when you went out there. Mid seventy seven until about eighty four. By which time, in eighty, in, in the mid eighties, obviously that you know things had developed and people were getting mm. relocation help. Senior people were getting relocation help, and, as were families and children were being sent to international schools. But when you were a single old, single young expatriate, you just had to get on with it yourself. So we made. We made lots of mistakes, but the advantage of all that experience yeah. of being an assignee is that when I finally, through a very convoluted route, got into relocation when I was really in my mid-40s, mm. without realising it, I had instinctive empathy for what an assignee needed, and I had an instinctive affinity for what HR should give their employees. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's not instinctive. It's, it's something that you've learned. I mean, that sort of experience <clears throat> and actually having virtually no support is extraordinary. So, I mean, what else would you say, looking back at your career as an expert, um, sort of stood out to you, certainly from a, a relocation perspective in regard to HR or the whole experience? Is there anything that you sort of look back and go, if only we addressed this earlier, we've done something better at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when I worked for Angus, which is a large, a large, large company, mm. I mean, by, by, you know, it was four or five, 10,000 people probably. We had a personnel officer, a personal manager. I never dealt with him. I never met, I, I knew who he was. I never saw, my direct line of relocation support was with my export director, with whom I had a, a very complicated relationship. Okay. So, if if I'd had somebody between the person I was reporting to work-wise and my what we used to call hygiene, which was relocation hygiene, you know, my yeah. rent, my, I mean, I remember asking my boss, I, I will you get me a, a, I wanted a speedboat, which is ridiculous. He you said, wanted a speedboat? I wanted a speedboat okay. to do water skiing, and he said, why do you want a speedboat, Crichton? I said. All my 
all my associates and, and other expatriates, they've all got speedboats because they all go water skiing. He said, I'm sorry, you know, live in the real world here. <laughs> so there was no HR, but to, to, to wind it forward a little bit, this was at the end of my seven-year tenure, mm. there was a change in management. My boss was deposed, and I had a new boss who just said, you are coming back on the 1st of August willy-nilly. I said to him, and I hope this is of interest to other people who go mm. through the same thing, I said, what about the agreement that I came to with my previous boss about the round-the-world trip, a month off when I get home, a month in a service department, a car for a month? He said, forget all that. Join the real world. So I came back on the 1st of August, 1984, with to nothing, because they wanted to, rather like in the army, they wanted to break me down as a returning expat to join the fold and realise that the comfortable life I had, I was no longer entitled to. So I would That's be in the office saying... Yeah, sorry, carry on again. I would be in the office saying things like, can somebody tell me how to use the photocopy machine? I haven't used a photocopy machine for seven years. I hadn't licked a stamp for seven years, for God's sake. I hadn't put petrol in the car for seven years. It had all been done for me. And people would say, there's a code for the photocopy machine. And I'd say, well, will somebody give it to me, please? I'd say, I am friend, not a foe. But you realise you were back in a world, this, this returning to the fold is a much more difficult thing than being sent away from the fold. Well, repatriation is a whole conversation in its own right, isn't it? I mean, it, it is it's always difficult, I think, for people to go back to their home country. But what's really interesting about your story there is that you had previous managers offering you something, but obviously nothing was in policy. There probably wasn't a policy, I'm going to suggest. Uh, probably nothing ever really documented or uh, put in, in place. So it was also a gentleman's agreement, which is Absolutely. an extraordinary way of, of managing a relocation assignment, basically. It, I mean, it happened for, for, for years afterwards. Yeah. After I Maybe. left the company, I left the company within six months of returning home, which is absolutely typical of a returning expat who's disgruntled. Because mm. it was, to say, I mean, I'm a very happy chap now, but it mm. was probably one of the unhappiest periods. I'd had a happy time in Singapore once I got settled in. But returning to the UK that first year coming back was probably the most miserable of my life. And, and it took me, I'd been away seven years, and it actually took me seven years to rehabilitate myself back to the UK. I did learn how to put petrol in the car and how to lick stamps, but it took me a long time. But isn't that interesting though? Can I just explore that for a second? Because I mean, I, I suspect we're going to be talking for a while, so we, we've got to be careful here. But looking back on that, if you were, say, the line manager wanting to come back, what would you do differently? What was the experience that could have been taught in regard to how to manage somebody returning? All right. Well, in, in view of the bad experience that I had, which was mainly, mm. it, it, it was personal relationships and, and a man that hated me and I hated him. So, I mean, it was, ah, it okay. After a racing it, start. It, it, was, it was personal because my boss, okay. who I had a very personal and long-standing relationship with, mm. uh, had been deposed from the board. And this was a new, new man coming in who was he, was, he wasn't sales, he was marketing. Right. He's ex-Wilkinson's, a, a completely different culture. Okay. What would have helped is, number one, if he, had, if he had followed the letter of the law, if you like, which was the, the letter that my previous boss had written me, which was, you are entitled to this, which in fact would be policy. Yeah. 
that would have helped. But the fact is that one came back to an emotionally charged environment. Now, had there been a relocation global mobility department in place or a proper HR department, that would have taken the heat out of it. It would have still been unpleasant. It would have neutralised it, wouldn't it? It wouldn't have been yes. this tension between you and your your new boss. Yes. So at the end of seven years, which must have cost them a great deal of money. I mean, we did very well. We did we we set up the Far East very well, mm. but it cost them a lot of money. And within six months, I was out the front door because I walked out. It's hmm. of interest. Did they replace yeah. you in Singapore? So did they actually take somebody else out there or did they change the whole they, approach? Yeah, they, they, uh, one of the things I want to talk about is trust and relationships with mm. distributors or with DSPs. Mm. But I had managed in my time there to forge this relationship with a new distributor. We had had a distributor who was very large and they were in trading and God knows what. A, I didn't get on with them at all. And B, they didn't get on with me. And C, they really weren't doing a very good job. Okay. And midterm through my um, tenure there, probably about 1982, I'd been there about three or four years. I was just getting the hang of it. One of the young salesmen from the distributor, he was an Indian guy, wonderful fellow. He he left and teamed up with a Chinese guy, and said to me, Crichton, I want to try. Will you take the agency away from the distributor, and will you give it to me? And I said, that's really, really going to be a hard, a hard call. But to cut a long story short, we took six months of, of doing this. We sacked the old agent. And then I said to my new agent, Raj, one evening when we were out for a soft drink, because he wasn't a drinker, I said, this is the way we go forward. Because I said, the old relationship that I had was pitted with disrespect and dishonesty. I said... I promise you that I will never tell you a lie. I promise you that I will tell you, I will give you the best price possible for whatever deal we do, providing you give me all the facts. I cannot tell you our factory costs, I can't tell you the best, but I promise I'll fight for you as long as you give me the facts. I want you to never tell me a lie. I never want you to say, we're collecting you for dinner at five o'clock this evening. You must ask me respectfully, are you free? We would like you to come. And you know, I mean, I still know this man. He's now a, a, he's now a judge in Singapore. He would now, if I asked him, I'd ring up, right, can you give me 10, 10 20,000 pounds? He would, because I made him into a millionaire. But the fact is that that trust between me and his new company never faltered. It never faltered. And from that moment on, this our business went like this. And they are still voted 30, 40 years later one of the best global distributors of that company. And it's all based on a handshake and looking somebody straight in the eye. Which is probably an incredibly powerful message. I mean, you just said you wanted to explore that in a little bit more detail. I, I, I agree. I mean, you're a man of your word. I'm a man of a word. It's incredibly important. I mean, how do you think that sort of translates into the modern world of relocation, though, when everything is based on perhaps not saying wrong, but different criteria? Do you think that still has a place? I think it has an enormous place, but I think to some extent the value of, of trust and relationship has been rather diluted. And I mean, not all, because obviously in our industry is highly unusual. I mean, it really is highly unusual. I mean, there's some bad things about it, not many bad things. I mean, it's got too compliance orientated and all this. But, but I have to say, in the, I don't know how many years I've been in it, 
which seems like a long time, 30 years, with very few exceptions, with very few exceptions, I haven't met anybody that I've totally, totally disliked. I mean, but mostly people are, they're a really good bunch. Yeah. Most of them are pretty honest, pretty straightforward. You know, they, they talk in front of their, in front of their competitors about business is a fairly freewheeling thing. I totally agree with that. Actually, I, I, you know, this, this is conversation about you, but I really have to step in and go. Yeah, look, I Hamilton agree. This is a remarkable industry, one I'm, I'm very, very proud to be part of because the you know, competitors talk to each other. There is a genuine willingness to make the industry better by working together, and I don't know how common that is elsewhere. Uh, and it is extraordinary when you think about it that competitors would actually sort of support each other for a common goal that actually benefits everybody. And, and yeah, yeah, I totally agree with this. I think that the trust is everything. Um, I, I, I was sort of born, my father was a, a city guy and he always said, trust is absolutely everything. If you trust somebody and they trust you back, you'll get the world changed. Um, it doesn't have to be anything more complicated than that. And I think he's 100% right. Yeah, I think that does exist. It, it has a place in this industry. So, I, I, I think one of the, we were talking about communication and how communication has changed. Well, I mean, mm. I mean, since if you take my experience from 1970, 1980, and mm. then 1990 and the 2000s, just in in global terms, everything has changed. <laughs> I mean, you know, the way we conduct relationships, dating has changed. We had we got email now. In my day, we had we didn't even have fax for God's sake. You know, we had no direct dialing. I mean, shows what an old fogey I am. But we still got business done. We still got business done. You know, we didn't have business class or anything like that. But I think this mass communication that we have now, everything is on email, mm. which brings me to the phone thing. Everything's on email. Social media has overtaken the world. And it's something, this is something I feel really very strongly about. And it might be that I'm, I'm, I'm a senior citizen now, although I do get involved in social media. But I think that we're mass communicating, group communicating so much that we, we really are losing those little touch points with people. Because everybody, and I say this respectfully to people because I've, I've been in the same situation myself, everybody is covering their arse because of compliance. You, if you say on the phone, blah, 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 and somebody forgets that, <laughs> so you, you type it in on an email and you copy in the world just so that you know that you've said it, that delivery will be at 4 p.m. on the 18th of October, not delivery will be on the, you said. To, to some extent, this devalues trust because we're no longer taking the word of a person. We're, only, we're, we're reading the email. I, I know one of them is you have a, a view about the phone about whether the phone is obsolete if if i remember your phrase correctly uh, what's what's your thinking around that why do you believe that's the case i spent my life earning my living a doing face to face but doing an awful lot of dialing and smiling you know when i first got into the relocation industry in 1992 i was hired by this guy to to promote his short service departments in 1992 to the corporate sector. I knew nothing about the corporate sector. I knew nothing about HR, but I did know about how to pick up a phone. I knew how to make meetings. So I dialed and smiled until my fingers bled. I still don't enjoy dialing and smiling very much, but you've got to be able to do it. It's part of the fabric of our business. In, in latter years, I had to do it again, even when I was with room service with a furniture rental company. But yeah. could you get through? Number one, you can't get through. Number two, when you get through, it's a voicemail. If you get through to somebody, you're blocked. 
So everybody says, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to listen to you. So you have to send them an email. And I'm thinking we're missing a big opportunity here because what we're doing now is we're having a telephone conversation where we can actually see each other face to face, which is better than yeah. nothing. Yeah. I think it's better than a phone, actually. Oh, miles better. It, it is far better than a phone. Mm. But in terms of just, one doesn't want to ring up a friend on a Friday night and have an hour's conversation, I don't. But I do want to say, how are you? But what do I do? I have fallen now into the trap as a 74 and a half year old man of doing all my communication on WhatsApp and texts to my friends. How are you? Would you like a beer at lunchtime? Blah, 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 blah. And I have not picked up the phone to my chums. I mean, to some I have probably for six months. Whereas during the pandemic, there was this community spirit and everybody was picking up the phone and saying, how are you? I'm going to the groceries. Would you like anything? They were actually doing that. They weren't texting you. We were, we were, we were being proper human beings again. And I think that the phone, obviously, and particularly for the younger generation, and God bless them, you know, we need somebody to take over the reins from us. But I think they hate the phone in that way. They just see it as a, it's, it's a tool by which you communicate this way. It's not a communication tool. You go, hi, how are you, great? That doesn't happen at all. It's an interesting one, isn't it, uh, about the phones? I mean, I have to say, sort of, sort of uh, putting it into a relocation co um, context, um, what I'm a big fan of, the one thing I come out of recent changes and COVID, everything else, is this, is, is you know, you're sitting in your house, I'm sitting in mine, but we're having a face-to-face -face conversation. It's not as good as if we're sitting together, but at least we're doing it. Yeah. Uh, if the phone can sort of move away and we, again, certainly in our company, we always want to do a Teams or a Zoom call with somebody and and really get to see somebody and speak to somebody. So if we can get to a situation where we're engaging this and actually can have proper one-to-one -one conversations using this technology, it's brilliant. And I think if we can get that back into the relocation world and if the, the phone itself slightly gets reduced, no bad thing as long as we move into this sort of space more. Because I mean, this is a people industry. And this is why it's talking to you is so fascinating. It's all about people. It's all about how we can make the relocation experience and, and just moving from somewhere to somewhere better. And you've kind of got to do that face-to-face -face where possible. Um, you, you also, I know, have a strong view around sort of cultural awareness and cultural training. Um, uh, I know, I'm wondering whether you think that the industry is doing enough in this space in regard to helping people with training. Do you have any sort of views around that? I think that when you're, again, because the world is changing so, I mean, especially in the last half half year, we, you know, we now have destinations. I know this is jumping a bit further to post, but mm. it, awareness is important on this. You know, in the old days, it was, you know, Europe were the, was the destination. They were mainly fairly safe destinations. You, you didn't need much cultural training to go and sell in France. All these other markets opened up. I mean, India is a prime example, you know, where that opened up into a massive market. So assignees were sent over to Mumbai or Pune or Delhi without really any knowledge of the Indian subcontinent. And it is so, so, so different. Oh, so, so, so do I agree with you. I mean, India is a place that's close to my heart. You know, I, I do a lot of work in India. I've got lots of clients in India. Uh, and I actually have to say, I love India. Uh, it is the most amazing country and, and culture and people. But the culture is radically different, isn't it? And you really do need to. I, I, I understand it sort of, and I say instinctively again, because my father, my grandfather, my uncle, my great great grandfather, my great 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 grandfather were all born in India. So I'm sure that somewhere inside me, I have some Indian blood, I'm sure I do. For sure. But that's besides the point. But you take India as a place that, that you go to untrained and you can fall into many pitfalls. You take China, I, 
I've lived in Asia for a long time. I've, I've been to China only twice. But China is again so different because now it's become pseudo-westernized. But underneath all that, there's, there's, there's no, that's a different place altogether. And I think in, in Asia, you need a lot of cultural training. Um, if you go to Canada, to Van I mean, Vancouver is one of the most highly rated places for expatriates, as, in, as is Melbourne in, in, in Australia. So do I need cultural training to go to Canada? Do I need cultural training to go to Australia? No, you don't. But you certainly need cultural awareness. And so I think a lot of people don't. No, this is interesting conversation. I'm kind of just, again, I'm just really interested because you've got a lifetime experience here and this is what I'm trying to tap into a bit. Well, first thing, that exactly same question. So people coming to the UK, do they need cultural training? Should we actually be doing more as an industry to help people to understand moving to the UK and, and the British mentality? Well, let's be honest, it's perhaps different to many other locations around the world. I, th I think we are particularly peculiar and particularly difficult for people to assimilate into. I think particularly for Americans coming here, mm. they do find it quite difficult because you think 5% of Americans have got a passport and then within that very small group of lucky people who come to the United Kingdom, they come here. And how many of them get the best experience of London? I think if you go and live in Weybridge or Esher and go to the international schools out there, you, 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 you just mimic really being in downtown Houston. But those who live and have a central London experience or, or even an out-of-town experience um, really gain something. We talk about how times have changed in the relocation industry, but times have changed in every respect, as I said before. So it's not just affecting our industry, it's affecting everybody's way of life. No, it's very true. Fascinating insight on that. One last sort of question, perhaps, because again, as I said, we know each other for a long time. We could probably talk until it is definitely dinner time. But yeah. is there any other sort of trends that you are seeing perhaps generally uh, that are going to have an impact on the relocation industry or something that you feel quite strongly about or you feel is of concern? I don't really mind which way you take it, but is there any other sort of trends that you think we really need to be alive to? I sort of sitting back and taking a retired helicopter view, which is all. Yeah, I can. which is why this is so interesting, you know, having this perspective. No front line I'm very much not on the front line in fact I'm, I'm not on any line at all really you know I mean I'm in the yard somewhere but listening and talking to my to my younger reload friends I, I think to myself if, if I look at the whole industry from 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 heaven if you like I, I think when I started there was send and PH, PHH there was relocation was fundamentally home search it was fundamentally guaranteed home sale and that yes. was about and it yeah, was Black Horse Relocation, those sort of companies, yeah. It was, that was, and you remember yeah. it very well. Yeah, yeah, that's where I came from. Lots of little little relocation agents, um, mm. many of them uh, run very successfully by, by professional women who were estate agents. Um, and now that, that, many of those have still survived, and I have to say that, that they have is a, is a, a tribute to them. Yeah. But many of those smaller DSPs have been eaten up in by, they've been sold their businesses, very profitably to, to larger DSPs and so there's been this consolidation of you know three DSPs turning into one big DSP so there's 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 this consolidation and then of course on the RMC side where there were only one or two or three 20 years ago there there is now many handfuls of them Absolutely. all competing for the cake which is still the same size fundamentally and the DSPs are doing the same. Now, one observation I have 
and I hope I'm right. And I had to do it when I was working both for the furniture rental company and room service by court because my target market was DSPs. Sure. I mean, I do know an awful lot of them. But yeah, that's it, it, it was, um, how, if you categorize them into, you know, the mamas and the papas, and then the ones that have five to 10 people, and then the ones that have 20 people, and then the ones that possibly now have 35 people, you're thinking, hmm, where are these people? And my instinct tells me that there's there's an upper echelon of DSPs who have really professionalised themselves. I mean, no names, no patents at all, because that would be inappropriate. But mm-hmm. who are now biting on the heels of the RMCs because they say they're going direct to corporates, which they have hitherto not done quite so actively because they got their business through the RMCs. But they're now biting at the heels of the RMCs by saying to corporates... You're usually given this band of services by the large relocation management companies, and this is what this is what you pay. But we want to tailor make it to you. We want to give you a boutique solution that can save you money, streamline your services, and and will make it for you, you, you. This is not just off the shelf. And I think I think that's a trend that that will develop. That people will get DSPs will turn into very small RMCs and offer boutique services. Um, I think also DSPs who are dealing now in the very high end of properties, um, and there didn't used to be many of those, there's a, there's a growing band of them. I read an article yesterday by Joe Eccles, who you probably know, but, but she used to be property, but I can't remember. She's now Eccles and Company. She said that there's now a growing trend with very, very wealthy overseas people. A growing trend. Forget the Russians and forget the Chinese. Just a growing sure. trend of we now see London as a really vibrant place to be now that we're out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And they want to buy really lovely trophy houses, 20 million pounds and upwards, okay. and use that as their base when they visit London. Now, <laughs> that, that's a big market for, for somebody who's home searching for them. A 20 million pound house is a lot of money. So all these things have changed since the days that, you know, you're just looking, you're doing a two or three day home search for a two or three bedroom house in Weybridge. Now right. there's this massive big market. Yeah, it is fascinating how much has changed, I have to say. And this is why it's so interesting to see it from your perspective. Uh, Ian, as I said, we could keep talking. I think we're probably at our allotted time, but thank you so much for your time. Uh, actually, if we find something else that's just something to talk about in the future about your perspective on the industry, I would love to come back and revisit it. So if you're happy just to explore some other chats, let's do it again. I'd certainly like to. Um, as a goodbye, would I say, if anybody is interested at all, during pandemic, I did some videos on LinkedIn. You may have seen some of them. Some, mm. of, them are, some of them are quite insightful. Um, because I think in all the years that one has been on the planet, you know, we know what we we know what we know, but we mm. don't know what we really know sometimes. And I think, you know, we acquire more wisdom than we think. So I'm doing a little bit of mentoring for people, looking at people's CVs, looking at people's websites, and just looking at with a with a warm but open eye. And that's something that I think is quite useful. Mentoring is, mentoring is important. Oh, I, I think that's most a fantastic thing. I'm a huge fan of mentoring. Uh, if if we, I knew that earlier, we would explore that. I think it's incredibly important. So to be a critical friend is yeah. is exceptional. I, uh, that is amazing. So somebody's interested in that, Ian. Let's do a little bit of plug for you. How do they reach you? 
um, they reach me on info at iaincrichton.co.uk. I have a website, www.iancrichton.co.uk, which is a little bit out of date. I need to do something about it. Good. If you can do um, some great mentoring, especially to help the people coming into this industry with your skill sets and knowledge, that is an amazing, wonderful thing. Uh, so I admire you enormously for that. If I can support you in that, I will happily do so. Great stuff. It's been great talking to you, Simon. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. I, I thought I knew everything about you and I discovered some stuff today that I didn't know. So that's more yet. Um, well, in that case, we're going to have to do a part two at some stage and come back and revisit. Good, good stuff. Look after yourself, Ian. Thank you so much for your time. All the best. Bye bye. Take care.